Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah 41, not 42, 41. We're going to start at the end of 41, really, to give us a run-up to get into speed by the time we hit 42. So we're going to start in 41, verse 21. Mentioned this briefly in Sunday school, but the Lord is indeed outside of time and space and energy and matter. He has created those, and as a result, when he authored this, he authored this with all of reality in mind. Amazingly, even this morning, this is God's Word. It will abide forever. Isaiah forty-one twenty-one. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell them, tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are and what we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name, and he shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads the clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, is he right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. 
Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a mighty man of war. He stores up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. I will now cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. And paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken in the reading of your word. Would you speak in its preaching? For Christ's sake, amen. Start with a science experiment. Not what you thought the sermon would probably start with. I guess you could guess every week. It's something different every time, I guess. One of my favorite science experiments to help me understand the Bible and think about who God is and how he interacts with his people, I'd Encourage you to do it today if you're over 18 and an adult that can safely handle fire. I'm not legally obligated. If your children burn your house down, that's not my fault. But don't do it, kids. Take a candle. Take it into a room where you don't have the air conditioning on, where it's not got fans blowing everywhere. The air is largely still. I love this. It's such a cool thing. You can light the candle. Let it burn for a little bit, right? Let the wick get nice and strong. You know, let it burn brightly and and stable. And then, you can actually, if you have a paper cup just like this, it works perfect. You can take it and touch it to the top of the wick, and it'll put the candle out, just like that. And then you can take your lighter and hit it and start that high above the candle and work slowly down the smoke. And at a certain point, halfway down the smoke, it catches, and the flame jumps all the way down the smoke and relights the candle. It's so cool. Like, I remember uh, the first time I heard that you could do that, and I thought, surely that's not possible. And so, of course, I tried it at Dick and Lou's dining room table, Sunday lunch, in front of all the kids. Surely it doesn't work with Lou's wonderfully beautiful uh, centerpiece on the table, slide the tablecloth over and start to play with fire immediately following Sunday lunch, let the hand didn't have a cup, touch the candle, put it out, bust out the lighter, and watch the flame jump. And it's like, whoa! That's amazing! It took a couple of tries. We had air conditioning on. took a little while to get a room still enough and quiet enough. And I think that was, it was not that long ago, as you might guess, actually. (laughs) Probably the first time in my head and in my heart I began to really appreciate a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
It's marvelous to think of. That you have in that moment a candle that has a wick that's not with a flame. There's no flame on it. But just the tiniest little burning ember at the tip of the wick with the wax that hasn't quite cooled yet, the heat that hasn't quite dissipated yet, and then all of a sudden, woof, it's back alive. It's so cool. And begin to understand, really, this is a, a, the way the Lord describes himself and how he cares for us. Now, it's a bit finicky. That's why kids don't do it. You'll burn your house down. It takes a couple of tries to get it right, but when you see it, it's absolutely marvelous. That's something that looks like it's dead. It looks like it's dying. It, it looks like it's, it's come to an end. It looks like it's over. It looks like it's finished. Suddenly and seemingly miraculously bursts to life again. Verse 3, chapter 42, I think is one of my favorite verses in the whole entire Bible. I know, I have a new favorite verse like every three months, I get it, but this is one of the standards for me. As the Lord describes his own tenderness and caring for his people, but really I think to appreciate that, we need to start back where I started reading in chapter 41. This section of uh, the book begins with uh, verse 21, set forth your case. It's, it's framed as really kind of a legal disputation. It's a legal argument, and I don't mean any kind of argument, like think lawyers, courtroom. It's almost like this is an argument that's taking place in the very throne room of God before the very court of God himself, only, <laughs> uh-oh, this is really uncomfortable, the Lord himself is the prosecutor. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I never want to be in any court case where I line up as the defense and the Lord lines up as the prosecutor. He always wins. That's actually the arrangement here, only it's not me, thankfully, that's in the defense right now. What is being lined up is uh, a court case, a, disputa- uh, a disputation between the Lord himself and the idols and those that worship them. The idols of the land, those made of gold and silver and wood and lead, those that would be bowed down to. Now again, kind of have to be honest about this ourselves, our idols today, though uh, certainly more sophisticated, are no less real, no less true. It's, It's easy for us to make fun of these and to kind of take this out of my own life by saying, well, those are silly and stupid idols. Instead, I'm going to worship my own ego. Worship my own feelings. Worship my own income. Worship my own luxury. Worship my own pleasure. Worship my own indulgences. I'm going to worship myself. But it starts in 21 with a disputation between God and the idols of the land and those that worship them. And much like the ending of the book of Job, the Lord begins with questions, statements, and comments that are hard to answer. Bring these idols in. Bring those that worship them in. Bring them before me. Let's see. Let's see what their knowledge is like. Do they they know the future? Are they able to tell us what's going to come to pass? Actually, better yet, verse 23, not only can they tell us, can they make it happen? Are these idols able to predict the future? Are they able to cause things to take place? 
Well, (laughs) the Lord now switches from prosecutor in some sense, verse 24, to judge and jury. Behold, you idols and those that worship them, you're nothing, nothing before me. You're less than nothing before me. You can do nothing. You cannot cause anything. You cannot make anything. You cannot do anything. You cannot redeem anything. Idols and those that worship them are more worthless than the dust. In contrast, now in verse 25, the Lord begins to provide testimony to himself. (laughs) Look, your idols can't do anything at all, but I can. I've raised up nations. I've used them to destroy my people. I'll use them to redeem my people. I am the one who is mighty in power. I'm the one who controls kings. I'm the one who controls armies. I am the mighty God. In fact, verse 27, I am the one who is able to speak into creation and say, this is the way it will be because I have the power to change things, to do things, to make things happen. Now, the court case comes to kind of an awkward moment. The Lord has shown that he is the victor. He has shown that idols have have no ability to control anything in time and space and energy and matter. They have no ability to improve our lives. They have no ability to alter our lives because the Lord is in charge over our lives. And it becomes really kind of, I think, probably a difficult point for many of us if we're going to be really honest. And I mean really honest. Not the pretend honest that Christians have when they sit in church. The pretend honest that I have when we sit in church is uh, the, the pretend Christian honesty is where I intellectually say, oh, well, I know the Bible says that, but I don't believe it. I gotta cut this way so it goes in the microphone, right? But I don't believe it. I know the Bible says it, but it doesn't impact my emotions, it doesn't impact my intellect, and I know the pastor thinks the Bible says that, but I'm gonna forget it the second I walk out the back. In fact, my tummy's kind of rumbling, I might already try to forget it now. I know that Christian forgetfulness. And the reality is, uh, at this point, at the end of 41, the Lord has declared, look, nothing that you have in your life is powerful enough to, in any substantial way, change your life. You want to make your life better? Nothing that you inherently have to, you can do that. You want to make your life more peaceful. There's nothing that you inherently have in you that's able to do that. You want to, you want to live your best life now. There's nothing inherent to you that can do that. The only place that we may look for an improved life is the Lord himself. And that kind of mm, good Christian church lying that I'm talking about is that truth. That we believe that kind of intellectually sometimes that the Lord is the one who is indeed in control over my life. But then we kind of quietly, in the back of our minds and in the back of our brains and in the back of our hearts, we doubt that he knows what he's doing. Some of you, had that exact moment yesterday when you opened your email, right? You never saw this coming. 
never thought, oh, Brandon, he's unbearably gifted. Sermons on Ephesians have been unbelievably good. Competency, competency beyond all competency. And you think, surely the Lord doesn't know what he's doing. Surely God's made a mistake. Most gifted man. What's going on? In 41, the Lord's established he's the one who's in charge of all of life. He's the one who causes things to happen. And then in 42, he begins to answer that question that is that deep down fear in my heart and in yours. The fear that the God that's in charge of my life, I don't want to say it out loud, but the God that's in charge of my life is is not very good at it, actually. (laughs) That I do a better job than he does. But he's not very skillful. And so in these first four verses where I'd like to focus in at least, he gives an explanation. He's established at the end of 41, hey, courtroom drama, right? Some of you weirdos like those courtroom TV shows. Here the case has really been brutally and finally resolved. God is powerful over the idols. Now what kind of God is he? What kind of God is he going to prove to be? And 42 actually marks something very special in the book of Isaiah. A new character is introduced. It's a character that we see kind of show up repeatedly throughout the rest of the book. They're called the servant songs, where now God begins to speak of this new figure in the story. A new character who shows up who is wonderful. The servant of God. Now, we would know him by the name Jesus. Second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. But through the rest of Isaiah, he's handled as the servant. And interestingly, God explains, you want to know what my character is like. You want to know what kind of God it is that controls your life. And I would say not just for Isaiah, I would say the people of Christ Ridge. You want to know what kind of God is controlling your life yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. You, you will find out now. One. He is a God who is so gracious that he gives us his son. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, my anointed, in whom my soul delights. It's intriguing to hear the the servant is introduced and this is as glowing of a recommendation as God can give. Now, hopefully you caught it. I gave Brandon my glowing recommendation even in the introduction, didn't I? Introduction to the sermon, well, middle of the sermon, but announcements. Brandon is as skilled and as competent of a pastor as I know. He's as good of man as I know. Wonderful, excellent, and holy. But my endorsement can only go so far. <laughs> I'm a limited man. And maybe, maybe you don't like me. Maybe you don't like my word. It doesn't mean very much that I think highly of him. 
Here, verse 1, actually, the Lord goes to speak of his son, and he gives his endorsement. This one that I'm going to send, this servant that I'm going to give, this is what he is like. I uphold him with my power. I uphold him with my strength. I have chosen him and placed my name upon him and in whom. This is an amazing statement from the Lord himself. My soul delights in him. It's a thing we probably don't think about enough about the Lord. What he was doing prior to creation, the triune God, one God, three persons, prior to creation, what was happening? Was God lonely? Right? Three persons kind of twiddling their thumbs, going, oh, I'm kind of bored. Let's create time. Sounds fun. Matter. People, oh, they're going to make a mess of it. Is that what God was doing? No. It was delight. The Lord, prior to the creation of time, space, energy, and matter, is full of delight. And interestingly, who's God delighting in? Himself. The Father delighting in the Son, delighting in the Spirit. The Son delighting in the Father and delighting in the Spirit. The Spirit delighting in the Father and delighting in the Son. It was a relationship of total delight, pure joy. Creation didn't take place out of loneliness. Creation took place out of joy and to invite us, weirdly enough, to be participants in that tiniest little bit of that triune joy. He sends his son, the one that he loves, the one that he delights in, and again sends him to his people. Now, not just to be kind of there, but that we would be united to him, that we would be joined with him, have union with him, so that when we say, Look, I've got union with Christ, I have union to this condition. Being upheld by God, being chosen by God, having God delight in that. Delighting in Christ and delighting in me. And since his son Next, you get to see kind of secondly here, this is with declaration of his competency. And some of us wonder, well, you know, maybe I might do a better job running my life than God does. He doesn't seem to do a very good job of it sometimes. Well, actually, part B of verse 1, we actually find, no, he does a very good job of it. He's actually perfect at it. I put my spirit upon him. This man is anointed with the power of God. Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And that spirit of wisdom and power and goodness and grace does what? Equips him to bring forth justice to the nation. He's so powerful and so good and so great and so grand that when we talk about him ruling and reigning, it's at a global level, right? Some of us have a difficult time managing the pets that live in our house, much less the children. He is the one who is competent to manage nations, his competency is actually unrivaled. He doesn't, he's not bothered by pets. He controls those too. He's not bothered by people. He controls those. He is the one who is sovereign over nations. 
He's unbelievably competent. Okay, well, so maybe he's competent, and this is where actually I think some of us might be today. Maybe he's just mean. Maybe deep down in our souls, and honestly, you should repent if you think this, but be honest enough to admit it. Maybe you think deep down in your soul, you think God is just mean to you. Right, the old internet meme that this is why we can't have nice things? Because the Lord hates us. I mean, he says he loves us, but he just doesn't really, does he? I mean, he says that he loves me, but he, he, just, he doesn't really, does it? He doesn't want me to have good things, and he doesn't want me to have a good life. Which is always interesting coming from like the richest people on planet Earth, but whatever. We still think it. And interestingly, verses two and three then begin to describe how he interacts with us. How does this God interact with his people? How does he interact with his children? This king, this servant, this filled by the spirit, ruler of nations, will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not a blowhard, right? He's not the guy who just yells and doesn't back it. He, in fact, actually, what do we find out? Verse three, and this is again, I, my favorite. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is so gentle and tender and precise and careful that he is able to heal the things that you think are broken beyond repair. That's actually what he's getting at. A bruised reed he will not break. Reed's not known for being necessarily the toughest of things, but one that's already damaged and damaged to the point where it's probably falling over and damaged in a way that you might not think it's recoverable. Right? This, he's using a, a farming illustration, really. That a plant that looks like it's, it's so unwell that it cannot be recovered He's such a careful farmer and such a careful God that he can bring it back to strength, bring it back to a robust life, bring it back to a life that doesn't appear that it would ever be able to have again. Now, realistically, some of us, I'd love to make fun of myself in this regard, have the ability to break the strongest of plants. It doesn't matter how healthy they are when they make it into our home, they are very much unhealthy by the time they make it out. Come home in a potted, you know, lovely little, you know, vase or whatever else, leave in the trash. He, interestingly, is describing himself from the opposite perspective. Those things that we would be placing in the trash are the things that he's in the business of healing and restoring and strengthening. Secondly, the illustration there of the, uh, the, the smoldering wick the lamp that looks like it's gone out, it's just smoking but not burning. It's the type of thing you would look at and be like, oh, I've got to figure out how to light the fire again. And yet he's so tender and gentle and careful that he brings life again. There are some of us in our midst today that believe that the Lord has 
dealt with them with a very heavy hand. There are some in our midst today that perhaps carry hearts that feel very deep wounds and very deep hurts. And those may be deep wounds and those may be very deep hurts. But friends, you need to be reminded that those are the wounds and the hurts of the greatest of all surgeons. Not a bumbling, making a hash of it kind of surgeon. Right? The wounds that you carry in your heart, if you didn't do it to yourself, they're circumstantial wounds, are the wounds of a God that is unbelievably precise, unbelievably perfect in his healing, in his restoration. It doesn't mean they don't hurt. It just means that he's gentle along the way. It means that he's careful along the way. It means that he's patient and measured. He's not prone to exaggeration in his discipline. He's not prone to exaggeration in his heartache that he gives and causes. In fact, he's perfectly measured. In fact, actually, we might be able to go and look at some of these difficult circumstances that the Lord has provided and in many ways view them either as surgery accomplished by the most skillful hands of the most excellent surgeon or perhaps even as the most perfectly measured chemo that's designed to kill the cancer inside. It doesn't mean that chemo feels good. Nobody likes chemo. But chemo, when done correctly, can kill cancer. It has to be measured so perfectly so that it doesn't kill the person. I love verse 3. Because it highlights it, it brings to the forefront the way that the Lord is dealing with us. And friends, I would say to remind you, even today, He is dealing with you with a gentle hand. Might not feel like it, but it is. If it doesn't feel that way, it's almost certainly because you've not diagnosed the sickness quite correctly, right? Almost certainly it's because you don't think the cancer is quite as bad as God does which is why he's treating you the way that he is. Or maybe you say, again, deep down in your soul, you say, well, okay, if he has sent his son to help, to forgive, to redeem, and if the son is competent, able to judge nations and to bring justice, and if the son is gentle in how he deals with people, you know, honestly, (laughs) I don't want to say this way, maybe he just got tired of dealing with me. I mean, I know myself, and I get tired of dealing with myself. There's nobody that aggravates me more than me. Maybe he just ran out of patience with me. Maybe he's just done with me. Maybe, you know what? (laughs) Maybe God just kind of, it just gave up on me. It's just done. Maybe he's just fed up. And I love verse 4. He's not going to grow weary. Who are you thinking about? That's you. We're the ones that grow weary, not him. He's not going to faint. He's not going to get discouraged. 
He's not going to give up until his reign is totally over the entire earth and everything is brought into submission and it's all fully and totally consummated. He doesn't run out of gas. We do. We got the problems backwards. In fact, we got the problems backwards on all of them. I'm the incompetent one. I'm the one that gets tired and runs out of gas. I'm the one that's not gentle or overly gentle or overly harsh. I'm the problem here. It's not him. He's the good one. I'm the mess. He's not going to grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth. The coast laws wait for his law. Everybody's waiting for it. He's not going to run out of gas. Now, for time's sake, verses five through nine, two key reminders to take out of these just briefly is that there, there might be the temptation then to kind of deal with God in the generic then. We'll say, well, okay, God deals with all of his people, but he just doesn't know me. Like, I mean, I know these promises that he cares for me, I know that, but he, he didn't have this in mind. And I will say that is one of the like spectacular lies that we tell. It is shocking how bad that lie is to say that God deals with his people in general, but he doesn't deal with me in specific. That he doesn't know my hurt, that he doesn't know my discouragement, that he doesn't know my sadness, that he doesn't know me. And verse 6 actually addresses that. I'm the Lord. Right, big statement there. That's big double whammy. I am, I am. I am the Lord. And I've called you in righteousness. I'm dealing with you. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant. This is this wonderful language of God marrying himself to a people. He's the covenant-keeping God. His covenant promises, yes, for us corporately, but also, yes, for us individually. Why? Because he knows you individually. And his knowledge is not in the abstract the way that I know about cheetahs. I know about cheetahs. I never want to see one up close. I know they're scary things. If one were sitting right next to me, this sermon would be taking on a very different tone, wouldn't it? It would be taking on the tone of me running out that door as quickly as possible and hoping you go with me. I know about that in the abstract, but I don't know that in the concrete. What God, it's not his knowledge is like in the ether about you. It's not the way that I know about cheetahs or Portuguese man of war or physics. Well, I understand a concept, but not really. No, he knows us personally, intimately. Deeply and fully and richly, he knows you better than you know yourself, better than your mother knows you, better than your children know you, better than your spouse knows you if you have one. And then verses 8 and 9, the full circle that he does actually have the power to do whatever he wishes. This God who loves his people so much that he sends his son to be victorious on their behalf, to redeem them from the pit, to establish his love for them forever. This God is the one, verse nine, behold, I do whatever I wish. Your idols can't do jack squat, but I do whatever I want. 
And oh yeah, by the way, what I want to do is I want to love you and take care of you. And nothing's going to get in the way, including you. I'm going to win. I love that. That's how it ends, right? I'm going to win a declaration of victory. And not the kind of declaration of victory that we'll hear from an athlete, right, where they run their mouth off before the game, where they go out and then to get smoked by the other team. This is the declaration of victory who is made by one who has won, is winning, and will always win. And then there's an application that's wonderful. He then turns really to us of what to do. Uh, how, how do I deal with these moments where I might doubt God's goodness? How do I deal with those moments where I might doubt God's competency? How do I deal with these moments where I might doubt that God even loves me at all? Is the answer navel-gazing? Is the answer kind of a redefinition of how we look at our world? I love it. Verse 10. Go sing. Stop thinking about yourself. Go sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praises from the ends of the earth. Everyone, everything, those in the sea, those in the desert, the inhabitants of Kedar and Salem, let everything give praise to the Lord. Go sing. Think about his mercy. Think about his goodness. Think about his greatness. And do your best to get your heart to overflow with the joy and gladness of our God. Go sing. Why? Well, verse 14, the Lord is patient. But interestingly, he's not patient forever. And by that I mean he's always patient. But there is a point in which he stops waiting to deal with things. I've held my peace, verse 14, but now it is time for victory. Combat for a season, victory forever. So we sing. We sing the praises of our God who is victorious now. And we sing the praises of our God who will lead us into even greater victory. Friends, if you have a a broken heart today, or a broken body, or broken mind. The Lord gives us instruction as to the methods to heal it. It is sing to the Lord the songs of Zion. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the lies that we tell ourselves and thereby tell you. Would you stir our hearts that we would be equipped to sing. Even now, a song that for some of us will be great comfort and for some of us might be a little bit bitter in the mouth. Lord, might this song, if it's not yet a reflection of our heart, be a commitment as to what it will be going forward. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.